This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. The New York Times headline, Facebook's next target, the religious experience. The company is intensifying formal partnerships with faith groups across the United States and shaping the future of religious experience as though the social media giant didn't already have enough access to our lives and our information. It seeks more now even into our religious experiences. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Here's a quote from that story in the New York Times. The partnerships reveal how big tech and religion are converging far beyond simply moving services to the Internet. Facebook is shaping the future of religious experience itself as it is done for political and social life. Does the article really address some of the sobering things church leaders learned about technology during the long months of COVID? Well, there's a, a brief mention that kind of fills in on that statement about how it's affected life in general, but specifically how it has affected American political life. And that, of course, I mean, both Republicans and Democrats, one of the only things that they seem to agree on right now is the degree to which social media is influencing American politics. And for different reasons, they're concerned about what kind of information they claim is misinformation, how that how much of that gets into social media. Now, of course, the fact that social media have almost completely backed liberal cultural causes has led to lots of charges of censorship by conservative groups, even though censorship, of course, properly defined is when the government, you know, prevents you from publishing information. And Facebook isn't the government yet, although you know, we've all heard the interesting recent discussions of the fact that the White House is apparently alerting Facebook when it believes there's misinformation about COVID vaccines and other topics. I mean, who knows what topics? And Facebook is taking stuff down at the request of the White House. That's certainly a powerful influence on politics. And even though Twitter and Facebook lean to the left at the level of their staff and their executives, let alone the people who've made billions of dollars off this stuff, it's clear that they simply can't control the contents of their websites. And in terms of everybody from Russians to other people putting information into Facebook groups and stuff, I think you'd have to say that in terms of how Facebook has helped shape American politics, that's a topic that everyone is worried about. If we have learned anything so far, it's that we have no idea how this technology will shape religious life when it gets plugged in and really gets rolling. So th they kind of glanced in that direction, but no, there wasn't a whole lot of content there. So how would you describe what the New York Times is covering here because obviously 
the platform would like to have its fingers into every experience that we have from the moment we wake up until we go to sleep. And probably at some point they're going to plan something for our sleeping hours as well. What exactly is in it for Facebook? Does the article ever get into that? Well, yeah, for Facebook, it's, you know, it's potential people using their technology for fundraising, social net. In other words, the stuff that businesses do, only now it's being done by churches, which, just to name another crucial legal aspect, these are churches who are dealing with information about the lives of people that have like the highest degrees of protection under American law. I mean, literally, clergy in their private dealings with people, that's material that's protected at the level of the Catholic priesthood hearing confessions. I mean, the, the highest degrees of pr privacy. I can take you for a really long flashback. Todd, how old were you in 1981? I was 17 years old, I believe. Okay. Well, you were, you were an old trooper at that point. In 1981, I was in a class at the University of Illinois taught by a very famous communications professor named James Carey. And it was a course on the history of technology. And we spent almost the entire semester discussing how much the printing press had influenced the Protestant Reformation, which is a very interesting question. But in that class, I wrote a term paper that was inspired by a uh, piece in the New Yorker about an obscure but rising Baptist preacher and evangelist, a young guy by the name of Jerry Falwell. And it mentioned in there, what caught my attention was, of course, he was using radio as his primary forms of technology to spread his ministry. But when you dug down into it, it mentioned the fact that all of the materials from the radio shows, and here's the key, the call-ins to the prayer line. People could call into the prayer line and request prayers from Jerry Falwell's staff. And this carried over into the ministry of Jim and Tammy Baker, who came out of the Pat Robertson organization. Well, in the Baker organization, something really interesting happened. It made me think of this in terms of Facebook. People would call in and pour their hearts out to the people on the phone-in prayer lines, and the people on the phone-in prayer lines would take notes for the ministers to be able to glance over attached to the names of these callers and whether these callers were donors, et cetera, et cetera. Well, then they turned out it was really effective that if you wrote the fundraising letters or you picked fundraising copy that fit the concerns of these people when they called in for prayer requests, that this really increased the amount of money they gave if you cherry-picked the contents of the letters to fit their concerns. I mean, so someone calls in and says, you know, my teenage daughter has run away. It looks like she's involved in drugs, and we don't know if we're ever going to be able to get her to come home at all. Well, next month, your fundraising letter would say, help Jim and Tammy with their new ministry to reach runaway teenagers. You know, we're hoping to start networks to be able to help find the, you know, now whether these ever become true. You could see the privacy concern there when one section of the computer network 
was wide open to the office of another section of the computer network. Well, you think anybody has any concerns about Facebook privacy right now? Do you think anybody has any concerns about privacy issues involving church groups or even when you start putting worship services on video and streaming them? I know churches that have refused to stream their services except to closed Facebook groups because you have images of children and stuff on there and people can scout out your church. You know, if, you know, in terms of the lay of your church building and what kinds of kids are there, et cetera, et cetera, you've got some, some scary possibilities there. Now, I just raised a whole can of worms. But if that was a concern in 1981, can you imagine what the privacy concerns are now when you start trying to mix small groups related to prayer concerns and counseling and people pouring out their feelings, and all of this is being stored somewhere in the giant cloud and near-divine-sized hard drive of Facebook, a group online, a company online, that as the article notes, there are now more people on Facebook than there are Christians in the world. So Facebook is big. And there's some good things you could do with Facebook, maybe. And there's a lot of bad things you can do with Facebook. And during COVID, a lot of our clergy learned the hard way that if they start putting a lot of stuff into chat groups and other things online, all kinds of misinformation and rumors get flashed through these groups. And the next thing you know, you might have a revolt on in your church about whether masks are required or are people going to be required to get vaccines? Or are people who are fully vaccinated going to have more rights in certain types of church services than people who aren't don't have the vaccine? You've heard all of this. Well, I could also note that QAnon has not taken over evangelicalism to the degree that some journalists seem to think it has. But everyone would agree that Trump-era conspiracy theories, both on the left and the right, have become powerful forces in the life of religious groups. Almost all of that, to one degree or another, is spreading through Facebook or to the groups that people flee to when they're thrown off of Facebook. So I think I'll end there for a second. Terry, we talked before about what's in it for Facebook. What is in it for these faith leaders that are trying to interface with the social media giant? Well, as always, the first thing they think about is evangelism. Anytime you have a new technology that's available to the church, everybody thinks that it's going to be a tremendous vehicle for evangelism. And in almost every case, and almost to the same degree, it doesn't take long to find out that the main thing it does is preach to the choir that you already have. Now, I happen to think that the Internet, because it's so... Uh, you've heard me say before that the one thing the Internet does really well is divide us into small groups that are interested in very specific subjects. And that can be good for the church in the sense that at my own parish here in Oak Ridge, we've had quite a few people over the years walk through the doors who are interested in orthodoxy 
because of what they've seen online about orthodoxy, and specifically podcasts and blogs. And you know, and it turns out that our founding priest is a very effective writer, both on Facebook and on blogs, and he also does podcasting. So what I think is an interesting contradiction here, or uh, attention, not contradiction, attention, that churches have to live with. These people walk in the door, and they're interested in the faith, and they're interested in your church in part because of what they've experienced and read or listened to online. And that's a good news, bad news, because some of what they're hearing about Orthodoxy or Lutheranism or politics or the President of the United States or whatever, some of what they're hearing is accurate, and some of it is completely speculative and quite wild at times. Now, the good news there is you now have an opportunity to meet with them face-to-face and talk to them and like introduce them to the fact that our communities are not primarily digital communities. They're sacramental, face-to-face communities. But what if these people's entire lives have been shaped by the Internet? What if their attention span has been shaped by the Internet? What if their desire to argue about certain subjects in complete anonymity has been shaped by the Internet? The church needs to look at both sides of that equation and how it shapes its work online to kind of take advantage of the good side of the Internet while admitting you're also going to have to repair the damage done by the bad side of the Internet. Well, you think Facebook is going to understand some of your doctrinal and sacramental concerns about some of that? I would have my doubts. We've talked about your kind of three-question definition of discipleship. What is it, and how does it apply to this story? Well, that came out of when I was teaching communications and technology studies at Denver Theological Seminary. And, of course, this was all right before the Internet arrived. We were primarily in the cable TV era. But one day, while talking with some future pastors, they kept saying, why do you think technology is such a big issue for ministry? Why do you think we need to even be thinking about the impact of movies and cable TV and popular music and popular books, etc. And on the spot, I improvised this three-question definition of discipleship that you heard me use at the Issues Etc. conference and elsewhere. Those three questions are, how do your people spend their time, how do your people spend their money, and how do they make their decisions? How do they spend their time? How do they spend their money, and how do they make their decisions? There's, of course, there's more to discipleship than that, but there's never less. And if you're not looking at those kinds of simple, direct questions about how people are living their lives, you're not really looking at life today in the age of technology, let alone the Internet. So I would ask a question to ministers. How does Facebook influence how your people spend their time, how they spend their money, and this is the most ominous one, how do they make their decisions based on what they read on Facebook? And I think most religious leaders will look at that and say, oh my, that's a mixed bag. I could see ways 
that this could go very, very good. I could see things that could go really, really bad. And so I think that that's what our denominations need to get involved with at the level of seminaries and executives and others. And I've done lectures on this for Orthodox conferences within the last month, including one hosted by a seminary. And I've just simply asked the question, right now, have many of our churches rushed into the use of these technologies with no guidance at all from their denominations, no guidance at all from clergy who have done some thinking about the impact of these forms of technology, good impact and bad impact. I want to stress both. You know, before, you just kind of throw open the doors and sign a confidential agreement, a non-disclosure agreement with Facebook, and just dive in. So two final questions, Terry. We've heard the old mantra that technology shapes content. In this case, what might that look like? Well, if there are any educators listening, especially church educators or people who work in Lutheran schools or whatever else, I think they know that one of the the biggest problems we have in education today is the decline both in the ability to concentrate the attention span of many students and also the fact that they just can't read anything unless they want to read it. Well, I would argue that if we start handing a lot of our religious education efforts to Facebook, you should expect messages to succeed on Facebook that look like the other successful messages on Facebook. And what's the content of those messages? How are they influenced by humor and rumor and chat-level questions and quick, fancy, highfalutin answers and this, that, or the other? How has social media influenced a lot of the materials that they have seen their own children consuming. It's sobering enough right now to consider the impact of social media groups on discussions of gender and sexuality, let alone the spread of certain concepts about those topics that I think most of our parents would be highly concerned about. So I'm not asking automatically, will those materials circulate through church social media? I'm saying, how will the discussion of serious topics about marriage and faith and sin and confession, how will those topics be altered if you try to put them inside a box, a technological box that's shaped by the values of social media and Facebook in particular? Finally, then, give us your thoughts on the media coverage of Facebook's partnership with Faith Groups, and what are some of the future media angles on this story? Well, this was a better story than I expected, and like I said, I would have dedicated more content in it to um, the questions about privacy and some of the things that have been raised. I could see... The New York Times, which has two serious religion reporters, I could see them doing a quick follow-up on that. At the same time, I imagine that discussions of those privacy concerns, that's one of the very topics that Facebook has written into those non-disclosure agreements 
that they require people to sign when they enter a partnership with Facebook. So I would say the next story needs to go very specific. It needs to look at a post-COVID Facebook-based ministry or discussion group or prayer group or book group. They need to get inside one of these groups and see if they can possibly talk to these people without violating the non-disclosure agreements. Because until we find out how this is being used by people, real people in real church pews and real pulpits, until we start hearing from some of them about the specifics of the content they're using, I don't think we have any idea how this effort could go, either for good or for ill. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he is founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.